Welcome to Resounding Verse, a podcast about poetry and song. This episode deals with a French poem, so we'll hear it first in English translation and then in the original French. The reading is done by my University of Oregon colleague, Fabienne Moore. Dream by Maurice Bouchard. Guided by beautiful, innocent eyes, in my magic boat with reflections of fine silver, toward love I would like to sail endlessly on blue and splendid dreams. Toward love, whose fresh breath cradles fields of flowers in an enchanted island, and which, to appease my tormented soul, will open holy forests to me. And later, far from the earth, O Viola, cured of burning languor, we will go to caress the dreams of our hearts on the happy island of mystery. In the free sky of the spirits, when we have left our mortal nature, will we not taste eternal peace? Dreamily, you smile at me. Guidé par de beaux yeux candides, dans ma barque féerique au reflet d'argent fin, vers l'amour, je voudrais faire voile sans fin, sur des rêves bleus et splendides. Vers l'amour, dont le souffle frais berce des champs de fleurs dans une île enchantée, et qui, pour apaiser mon âme tourmentée, m'ouvrira de saintes forêts. Et plus tard, quand, loin de la terre, ô Viola, guéris des brûlantes langueurs, nous irons caresser les songes de nos cœurs dans l'île heureuse du mystère. Dans le libre ciel des esprits, quand nous aurons quitté la nature mortelle, ne goûterons-nous pas une paix éternelle Rêveusement, tu me souris. Maurice Bouchard lived from 1855 to 1929. He was a French poet who today is not particularly well-known, but who in his day was quite well-known. He found success at a young age. He had his first poems published in literary journals when he was only 17, and he released his first volume of poetry when he was only 18. Bouchard traveled widely, including to the United States. In 1893, he visited New York City, and it's a sign of his renown that the New York Times published an article about his visit. The writer describes him very vividly. He says, He is 38, tall. Nature gave to him the graces of a beard long and soft, although his forehead be ample as a profound thinker's. And though his eyes reflect ethereal ideas, his face is most artistically Grecian. He is studying Buddhism assiduously, is a vegetarian, and practices with evident pleasure a life of Cartusian austerity. And Cartusian here refers to an order of Catholic monks. So the idea here is that Bouchard was a very distinguished figure, a well-traveled gentleman, an intellectual who projected an air of austerity and profundity. 
The text that we just heard forms part of a much larger poem, which was published in 1895, and which has nine separate sections, each with multiple stanzas. The whole poem is over 200 lines long. It's essentially a love poem, but to call it that doesn't really capture how extravagant it is. The full poem is a kind of blend of Christian mysticism, Buddhism, and symbolism. The original title of the poem is Vers le pur amour, or Toward Pure Love. The purity here being something that transcends physicality altogether. This is a poem that we would describe as metaphysical, beyond the physical. The Catholic element in the poem, and recall the New York Times critics' comment about the Cartesian austerity of Bouchard, the Catholic element comes from the way Bouchard compares his beloved with the Virgin Mary. The beloved is named Viola in the poem, and Viola refers to violet, which is of course a blue flower, and blue is the color of the Virgin Mary. St. Bernard actually referred to the Virgin Mary as the violet of humility. And beyond that, there are lines that directly reference the Virgin Mary. That's the larger context. But what about these words, the particular words that Melbonis sets to music? They're drawn from section four of the larger poem. Viola's name appears in this part of the poem, but not until line 10 of 16. So without the context of the entire poem that I just provided for you, we don't know until over halfway through this particular poem who the poem is directed at, or even really that it's directed at a person at all. The first line talks of beautiful, innocent eyes that guide the speaker in his magical boat. But not knowing what's to come, or what came before in the larger poem, we might just think that these eyes are stars in the sky. Only at the words, O Viola, do we learn that they are real eyes, and that the speaker of the poem is speaking to someone. This sense of gradual clarification defines the entire text, and not just when it comes to the identity of its addressee, or the person being spoken to. Take the opening lines. The first three lines start with dependent clauses. So we have, guided by beautiful innocent eyes, in my magic boat with reflections of fine silver, toward love, and then, I would like to sail endlessly. These phrases describe the subject of the stanza, guided by, in my magic boat, toward love, which only arrives halfway through the third line, and that subject is I. So the text, in other words, starts slowly, as though searching for its subject, just like the narrator in his magical boat who is searching for a transcendent love. The second stanza begins to describe what that transcendent place, that enchanted island, is like, with fields of flowers cradled by the breath of love and with holy forests. The next stanza, the third of four, describes what the speaker of the poem and his beloved do in this enchanted place. And these lines are, And later, far from earth, O Viola, there's the beloved addressed, cured of burning languor, we will go to caress the dreams of our hearts on the happy island of mystery. So this stanza is, as I just noted, where her name, Viola, first appears, and it's also where the pronoun we 
first appears. We've heard one pronoun so far, I, in the first stanza, and now we hear we. We will go to caress the dreams of our hearts. The poem, again, is kind of floating, drifting toward a destination, and here the destination is an image of the couple together on this otherworldly island. And then comes the final stanza, which goes like this. In the free sky of the spirits, when we have left our mortal nature, will we not taste eternal peace? Dreamily, you smile at me. This is the only you pronoun in the entire poem, and it comes in the final line. There's something about this final line that that really grabs me, and it's hard for me to explain what it is. In part, it's the presence of a you pronoun, and I've been talking about how we move from I to we, to you, as though we're drifting toward the addressee, toward Viola, who is being addressed at the very end. But there's also something about the present tense of this line. So many of the other lines in the poem are in other tenses, like conditional tense, I would like to sail, or future tense, love will open holy forests to me, we will go to caress the dreams of our hearts. But here we have not you will smile at me or you would smile at me, but you smile at me in the here and now, not in some imaginary future, but in the present moment. But that's just the thing. That present moment, the moment at which the beloved smiles at the speaker of the poem, opens up entire worlds beyond it. It's like a portal of sorts. And this is something that I think we all have experienced at times, whether it's looking in the eyes of a beloved, or looking at a beautiful scene, or listening to a beautiful piece of music. A single moment can somehow open up into something unimaginably large. That's what this moment in the poem suggests to me. And as we'll see, that's what the song does as well. Dream by Maurice Bouchard. Guided by beautiful, innocent eyes, in my magic boat with reflections of fine silver, toward love I would like to sail endlessly on blue and splendid dreams. Toward love, whose fresh breath cradles fields of flowers in an enchanted island, and which, to appease my tormented soul, will open holy forests to me. And later, far from the earth, O Viola, cured of burning languor, we will go to caress the dreams of our hearts on the happy island of mystery. In the free sky of the spirits, when we have left our mortal nature, will we not taste eternal peace? Dreamily, you smile at me. Guidé par de beaux yeux candides, dans ma barque féerique au reflet d'argent fin, vers l'amour, je voudrais faire voile sans fin, sur des rêves bleus et splendides. Vers l'amour, dont le souffle frais berce des champs de fleurs dans une île enchantée, et qui, pour apaiser mon âme tourmentée, m'ouvrira de saintes forêts. Et plus tard, quand, loin de la terre, ô Viola, guéris des brûlantes langueurs, nous irons caresser les songes de nos cœurs dans l'île heureuse du mystère. Dans le libre ciel des esprits, quand nous aurons quitté la nature mortelle, ne goûterons-nous pas une paix éternelle Rêveusement, tu me souris. 
And now, here is a musical setting of Bouchard's text by the late Romantic French composer Mel Bonis. French composer Mel Bonis lived from 1858 to 1937, so she was active in the latter part of the 19th century into the early 20th century. Bonis grew up in a middle-class home with parents who didn't really support her musical ambitions. She taught herself to play the piano, for example, until she was 12 years old and was only allowed to take music lessons after a professor at the Paris Conservatory urged her parents to provide her with some training. She started composing at 16 and a year later was invited by the famous composer César Franck to enroll at the Paris Conservatory, where she studied alongside Debussy. 
Her time there, however, was short-lived. Her parents withdrew her from the school in part because she had become enamored with a fellow student named Amede Hetich, a singer, poet, and music critic who in their eyes represented the quote-unquote dangerous artistic world into which their daughter was being drawn. They forced her into an arranged marriage with a widower who was 25 years older than she was, who had five boys and had little interest in music. Bonice maintained their home and raised his five children, as well as three more that she had with him. She gave birth to another child as well, a daughter named Madeline, who was the product of an affair that she had with Hetich, the student she met at the conservatory. Madeline was put into the care of foster parents and had little contact with her mother, but after the death of Bonice's husband, the two were reunited. Still, through all of this, she persisted in writing music. Encouraged by Hetich and also by other friends, she started composing regularly in about 1894. And I might say here that Mel Bonice is a gender-neutral pseudonym that she adopted as a composer. Her given name was Melanie Bonice. She continued writing music through the late 20s until her death in 1937 at the age of 79. Toward the end of her life in 1933, she described her path to composition. And she said this, Much limited in my young days by family obligations, although always haunted by musical composition, I would only start working late in life, and thus, despite my age, I am not a very old composer. In spite of this quote-unquote late start, Bonice wrote over 300 compositions, including about 150 works for solo piano, 20 pieces of chamber music, 30 works for organ, 11 orchestral works, and 40 songs. This song, Songe, or Dream, comes from a set of three songs, Opus 91, which were published posthumously. They were written in 1913 and 14, but not published until 2014, a hundred years after they were written, in an edition edited by Christine Géliot. And Christine Géliot is a professor of piano at the Conservatoire d'Anières in France, and also happens to be great-granddaughter of Mel Bonice. She has published widely on Bonice's music and maintains a really fascinating and useful website about the composer. As I mentioned in my last episode, I'm often first drawn to a song because of the mood that it creates. It's really as simple as that. And for me, analyzing a song or any piece of music is often about trying to determine how a composer creates that mood, how they use the tools of the trade to move me in a particular way. I have in front of me right now a sheet of paper with some words describing the mood of the opening of this song. Looking at the list now, I'm struck by how many opposites I chose when I first listened. I wrote static, but somehow also active, calm slash peaceful, but also in constant motion, and then a soothing lullaby that vibrates with quiet energy. The calmness, stillness, soothing lullaby-like quality clearly comes from the slow tempo, the major mode, and the legato marking in the score. Also, there's a constant eighth note flow onward, like the water that carries the magic boat. But there's something else that makes the opening sound like it's, as I put it, vibrating with quiet energy. And I didn't realize what it was until I sat down to play the passage. Only then did I sense what was so novel about the piano texture. It's not just that it moves in constant motion, and that it sounds a major chord with some added pitches. 
what we call non-chord tones in theory speak. It's that those non-chord tones are only in the left hand. The right hand plays notes of the major triad and only notes of the major triad. It's like a constant backdrop, a solid color that's ever-present, while the left hand provides touches of a different color. Let me break it down for you and show you what I mean. Here is what the right hand is doing. Imagine this as, say, a blue color, like the blue and splendid dreams mentioned in the poem, or the blue of the sky that hangs above the narrator in his boat. And beneath it, maybe representing the boat itself that rocks on the waves, is the left hand with its added tones, tones that aren't a part of the chord. And this is what the left hand sounds like. Think of these non-chord tones, these gentle dissonances, as maybe the reflections of fine silver mentioned in the poem. And then together, right hand and left hand create this. This is a piano texture that Bonis uses throughout the entire opening section. Even when the chords change, the right hand only ever plays notes in the chord, the main chord, and leaves the non-chord tones to the left hand. It creates a kind of crystal clear purity above a murmur of dissonance. The real dissonance, though, comes in the next section of the song, when Bonis moves into a different tonal realm altogether. The first section of the song is in D-flat major, and despite the non-chord tones I just mentioned, there isn't a single chromatic note. Everything fits within that key. But the next section explodes with chromatic pitches. If you were to look at the score, you'd see that in an instant. But you can also hear it, I think, if you just listen to the chords in this section. What I'll do is first play the chord progression of the opening section of the song, just to give you a basis for comparison, and then play the chords in the second section. The effect is like moving stylistically from Romanticism to Impressionism, from mid-19th century harmony to early 20th century harmony, from one world to another. And here's what those chromatic chords sound like in the song itself. What you just heard is music that starts in D-flat major, and then moves rather seamlessly to A major, and then to D major. And you don't need to be an expert in music theory to know that traversing these different keys is a pretty radical move. 
And it makes sense considering the text here. The words are, Toward love, whose fresh breath cradles fields of flowers in an enchanted island, and which to appease my tormented soul will open holy forest to me. This sounds to me like nothing less than enchanted tonality. We're moving from real-world tonality to a kind of otherworldly tonal realm. The next section of the song, which sets the third stanza of the poem, is identical to the first section. And then we move to the final section, which is a varied repetition of the section we just heard, the very chromatic, otherworldly tonal section. So what does Bonice change in this section? Well, it starts exactly the same for the first two lines of this stanza, and those are in the free sky of the spirits when we have left our mortal nature. And then it shifts for the last two lines, and those lines are will we not taste eternal peace? And then the all-important final line, dreamily you smile at me. Rêveusement tu me souris. I'll play the final section of the song through to the very end, and I want you to listen for two changes. You'll hear the word eternel, or eternal, and then the piano texture suddenly changes. This is the first thing I want you to listen for. We have been hearing rapid 16th note arpeggios, and then they stop. Everything moves now in slower note values. And then, here's the second thing, you hear repeated octaves in quarter notes in the right hand of the piano. So how do we account for this shift to repeated octaves? What's the effect here? When I listen to this, my mind is taken to another song, a much earlier song by Franz Schubert. And I'm not suggesting here that that Mel Bonice had this song in her mind, but there's a song by Schubert called Ihr Bild, or Her Image, and it starts with just stark repeated octaves. And here's what they sound like. poem is about someone who's staring at an image of his beloved, looking in the eyes of this image, and then the image comes to life as he stares at it. In a rather famous analysis of this song, the music theorist Heinrich Schenker calls these octaves the staring eye. And maybe this is a bit fanciful, but when I listen to these octaves in Melbonis's song, I hear them as the eyes themselves, a kind of focal point that the poetic speaker is looking at just as we are listening to them attentively. You may recall that I described this moment in the poem when the beloved smiles 
at the narrator as a kind of portal that transports us from the present moment to a kind of otherworldly enchanted realm, as though these two realms, the here and now and the out there, the present and the future, begin to kind of collapse into one another. Well, what's fascinating is that these octaves function as a kind of musical portal that takes us from the enchanted tonality of this section of the song back to the D-flat major of the opening. The last measure of this section, the measure right after the word rêveusement, is entirely whole tone. And by whole tone, I mean that it uses notes on the piano that are a whole step apart. Impressionist composers like Debussy, for example, were famous for using whole tone scales to move beyond major-minor tonality. And that's just what Bonis is doing here. This is a sign of her immersion in this kind of impressionist idiom. But what's wonderful is that she leads smoothly from that whole tone realm back to major-minor tonality, in this case D-flat major, with great ease. I'll play the measure just before the return to D-flat major, and notice that it uses only the notes of this scale, a whole tone scale. What makes the move from this whole tone land to D-flat major land so smooth and easy is that that single note that we heard repeated in the piano is then picked up by the voice and carried over that transition. I'll play that passage again now with the vocal melody above it. I'll begin by singing just the vocal melody on the word rêveusement, or dreamily, and you'll hear that repeated pitch. And then notice how it is a kind of thread that binds these sections together. Like the eyes themselves, it's a portal between two different worlds. What a moment that is. It shows such craft, such command of her musical language, and also such attention to the text. And it's a sign, if we need it anymore, that the music of Melbonis needs to be heard as widely as possible. Here, once more, is her setting of Maurice Bouchard's text.
Special thanks to Fabienne Moore for her lovely reading of the poem, and also to the Analecta record label for giving me permission to use this recording by Hélène Guimet, soprano, and Martin Dubay, piano. To listen and subscribe to the podcast, go to resoundingverse.buzzsprout.com. Resounding Verse is produced by me, Steve Rogers. Thank you for listening. <laughs>